This is Giving the Game Away, the podcast where we uncover lesser spoken about topics from the world of sport by interviewing elite athletes, psychologists, agents, broadcasters and more. And coming up on today's episode. And then he sort of got straight into it. He said, listen, right, this is how the business works. And he pulled out $15,000 US cash and just sat it on the table and said, right, that's our down payment. And we deal in cash. And uh, and um, what we do is we, we bet inside games. It was pretty straightforward. But as an opening batsman, I was just asked to score, you know, between 10 and 15 runs off 20 balls and get out. That's it. Job done. 50,000 US dollars in some random account in, in Dubai. All yours, no worries. Once you're there, you're, you're always living with a noose around your neck waiting to be bribed. And, you know, there was always subtle conversations about your children and where you lived and things that they knew about you that you didn't even know. Today, we're bringing you one of the most detailed interviews yet about the world of match fixing and corruption in professional sport. And we're lucky to have Lou Vincent on to give a detailed explanation of how he was roped into this world, what he was made to do, and how after a while, it was a side to his life that became completely inescapable. For those that don't know, Lou Vincent was an international cricketer for New Zealand, and at one point, one of the best players in the world. But as we'll hear about over the next hour, Lou's career came to an abrupt end when he got caught up in this world of match-fixing, corruption and crime. One of the main reasons we do these podcasts is to try and shine a light on areas of sport that aren't often talked about. And that's why we're so excited about this episode, because rarely do you get to hear about match-fixing from someone who themselves has received 11 life bans for fixing cricket matches. And today's episode will uncover how Lou Vincent actually got lured into the world of match-fixing what exactly he was asked to do by the corrupt fixers and how they kept him involved through intimidation and fear. Something else we try and highlight in our podcast is how athletes can turn setbacks into opportunities. And what's great about Lou's story and journey is that while he acknowledges that what he did was completely inexcusable, he is now attempting to turn that negative period of his life into a positive by educating young sports people about the dangers of corruption and match fixing and he hopes that his experiences can help to ensure that no one else gets tangled up in the same mess he was. If you enjoy this episode, please do leave us a review or a comment on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out our YouTube, Twitter and Instagram pages for more content. Lou, what a pleasure to be chatting to you today. And I'm so glad we finally got a date in both been wanting to do this for a while and we've obviously been back and forth over emails and whatsapps over the last few months so it's so good to finally be chatting to you today something you sent me recently was a load of fans at Seedon Park all wearing Lou Vincent shirts whilst watching the test match and something that must feel good after your well-known absence from the game to be back as part of the cricket community again and having a positive effect on it all oh it's 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 lovely it's it's when when cricket's been a part of your life since you're four years old, and what am I now? Jeez, I'm almost 44. It's um, it's hard to ignore all the, the the journey that the game has taken you on. And yeah, certainly towards the end of my career, when it went pretty south and pretty sour, um, and going through all the the court cases and high-profile media barrage and getting hit with 11 life bans, it's, it's, it was very easy for me just to turn away from cricket for a few years and it's been probably six, seven years, been out of the game and it's funny what sort of pops up, and, uh, you know, after, after, after the dust settles and, and life moves on, um, you know, cricket sort of popped back into my mind last year when I moved down to Raglan and and just uh, just watching the young kids sort of at the beach, and I was like, yeah, beach cricket's fun. And then all of a sudden, other kids started joining in, and then all of a sudden, one thing led to the other to the point where last week, when the test match was on, um, the first test match between New Zealand and the West Indies, and all the kids I've been coaching, they all wanted to wear my old professional shirts from around the world, and they all went to the game wearing my shirts as a bit of a bit of a moral support to try and help me in the future overturn my ban. So it's it's cricket's on a high in Raglan and it's, it's lovely to be the instigator to it and it's it feels right. So no, thank you. It's good to good to be here talking to you guys and, and also well done with um, the topics that you've been covering. I've heard a couple of your podcasts and really like what you guys are 
uh, bringing to the, the sporting community. So keep up your good work as well. Appreciate the kind words, Lou. And yeah, it's, it's been great to see you back involved with cricket and lovely to see that picture you sent through, as you say, of, of all the kids wearing your, your old jerseys. And that must have just brought back some lovely memories of your time playing for New Zealand. That, that must have been a, a, a great experience, your, your career playing for your international side. Oh, immensely, immensely proud of what I've achieved in cricket, you know, but that, fo- that photo re- represented to me what it's about and it's about the, the future growth of the game and having, and it brought back memories of me being a little kid jumping the fence and going to the cricket and trying to get as many autographs as possible and just seeing the excitement in the kids' faces, just there watching and seeing, you know, the TV cameras recording the game and, and just the intensity of that, that top level and you know, the excitement of being at, at, a, at a field with the sun shining and getting hot chips and a can of Coke and playing cricket on the bank, you know, that, that's, that's what it's about, is, is bringing fun and, and excitement into, into any sport. And that's what sort of fills my heart, seeing, seeing kids sort of wanting to, um, you know, get outside and be active. Definitely. And how, going back to your test career, and obviously you've scored 100 on test debut, how did that feel to, you know, getting thrown in straight into test cricket in Perth against Australia? Obviously, they were the best side in the world at that point. How did it feel to score 100 on test debut? Oh, man, it was, it was amazing because I was, I was just a young guy, 21-year-old on tour. I was the gopher, the water boy, the where's the chewing gum, Lou, go carry my bags, you know, last one into the change room sort of thing. But I just... I do. I always remember that time in life being like, I just, this is awesome. It's like a, it's like I'm in my own little movie, and I, and I get to sort of like, play it out. And you know, there's that, there's that famous person and that famous person, and, and then yeah, the last game of the tour, it's like, uh, the, the, you know, Matthew Bell was struggling for form, um, who was, who was, an, who was had an, who, who had an incredible season, but, um, yeah, failed against Australia, and they said, hey Lou, you know, do you want to play tomorrow? And if you do, you're going to be opening the batting against, um, you know, against McGrath and. Lee and Gillespie and Warren at the Wacker and I was like oh yeah that's just like bring it on and I wasn't I wasn't nervous of course I was nervous I was absolutely nervous because you're just like wow this is it this is there's no there's no fantasy anymore it's you walking out to battle against the best in the world and oh I couldn't have worked out better you know winning the toss batting you know sun shining at, at, at the at the Wacker and all the Aussies in the media saying it's going to be too fast, too bouncy for the ki- uh, for the Kiwis and you know whatever it was, 500 runs later, you know four of us got hundreds. Um, it was an incredible first innings and you know, I, I guess I, I raised my bat first with a hundred and I guess the other guys thought well if Luke can get a hundred it must be pretty easy so let's let's get hundreds as well and it was incredible. I just I've got the shirt, I've got the the scorecard. It's the only thing I have about my cricketing career up in our in our clubhouse here and you do you look through the whole scorecard of that game and that's the test match that Shane Warne got that famous 99 and and we almost won with 40 minutes to go we had um, Gillespie glove down leg side but the Zimbabwean umpire said not out and then yeah if that had gone our way who knows we, we, we could have got out Brett Lee and McGrath with 40 minutes to go to win the, the test series against Australia so yeah, and that's it. You know, you can't take that away from anyone once you've, once you've performed at, at a high level. It's, it's there in the record books and something that you've got to be proud of and you have to be proud of what you achieve. Yeah, exactly. You always have that Test 100 on debut in your record and you always have that shirt which you can keep for the rest of your life. And I find it so interesting your approach to that game because it sounds like, yes, although you're a bit nervous, you wanted to take your opportunity and you were excited by it. Um, and that's just a good attitude to have. Um, where would you say that test debut ranks in your list of career highlights? You've obviously um, featured at a World Cup. You've also broken the one-day international record for New Zealand. Where would the test debut feature in that list? Hey, if, if we'd won the test match, uh, it would have been the, the ultimate best day, best week of my life. We didn't, it was draw. It's a huge, huge part of um, you know what I feel proud of. Um, but I think when you're young and at that level, and going back to how I wasn't, you know, feeling nervous, I was I was excited, and of course I was apprehensive. Um, but you just want to um, just test yourself against the best and and get out there and and to have success at that level was great. But nothing, nothing ever ever beats as a team uh, collectively winning a game and. For New Zealand, we had some amazing games against Australia, more so in the in the 
we never bit them in a test match but one day cricket we had you know we um, sort of topped them over probably five or six times during my career and just a, that feeling in the change room sitting there taking down the best team in the world and you're like yeah how good's that that is the ultimate you know you know the best thing I remember from my, my international career but also club cricket in England you know Ramsbottom playing against some team up in the middle of the uh, the, the Lancashire League and you know just seeing someone that's never been able to really score runs just to hit the winning runs and see them charge off the field with their shirt up over their big bare belly and running through the fence because they can't jump over it and just being so happy that they've won a game you know those are the moments in my life that stick out is when I see people just happy Definitely I was just going to say that I've see when we were coming up to this interview I was watching highlights of you and it seems like you were quite a fearless player anyway like it looking at the game sort of 15 years ago it's not like people were sort of scooping the ball or reverse sweeping as much and then I see highlights of you and it's like you're taking it on some of the fastest bowlers in the world so you must have been quite a fearless player anyway yeah yeah well I, I, I'm, a, I'm a New Zealander I was born in New Zealand uh, my dad was working in radio and uh, when we, when I was 12 we dad and I moved to Australia so I had five years five years um, at high school in Adelaide and I just remember been at Adelaide Oval every day and the ground staff would always have a little secret, you know, a little pitch ready for us and three of us would go down and practice every day and then you'd rub shoulders against the professionals and just watching the way the attitude of the Australians played, it's just like, man, it's 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 your time, you've got every right to be on this field, you've got every right to take it on, it doesn't matter, it's a level playing field. So th- I think having that five years in Australia of, of that attitude, and we all know, you know, we all love to beat Australia and we all love watching Australia and sitting in the ashes with the, with the England team and it's just the attitude of just like, you know, you've got this and get out there and and you got be fearless and, and take it on, you know, it's it's so true and that's what I bring to my coaching with kids these days is actually it's not so much, oh, you have to play dead straight and block the ball at your feet and stuff, it's like, man, there's the ball, man, if you want to hit it, man, smack it for six, smack it for four, just... You know, get get the get the feeling of of hitting the ball hard and 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 you know mucking around with the the bowlers and and pissing the fielders off by hitting one there and moving it there and you know a game inside a game, um, you know. So yeah, and, and get me wrong, when mentally I wasn't great and I was feeling low on myself and I didn't feel like I was going to perform. It's amazing the games I walked into and I didn't perform. And then you'd be, you know, you'd be tougher on yourself and then you'd get insular and then you would sort of like oh god start searching and start asking questions start asking every coach what's wrong with my technique and you know so you sort of when things are great they're great but when things aren't great you know I look at my career and my downfall was definitely my self-esteem you know I had an amazing start to my career but the very next test match I got a first ball duck against Bangladesh so it's like well penthouse to shithouse you know and you've got to deal with that as a 22 year old and you know I think this day and age there's a lot more um, support for young athletes with um, the mental side of the game which during my period of time was there was not much there I certainly was um, uh, as my career went on was you know a victim to poor mental health management Um, so yeah it's easy to look back in in hindsight um, but uh, yeah when I was on fire I was definitely uh, yeah a pain in the ass to play against (laughs) <laughs> well, we're obviously a podcast that has a strong emphasis on the mental side of sport. And I find it so interesting you talking about scoring 100 on test debut and then shortly after scoring a duck against Bangladesh. And I think that just is indicative of the highs and lows that cricket can take you on because it's just such a mentally demanding sport. What would you say was the biggest psychological challenge you encountered in cricket? Uh, that's a good question. Um. I think something that you can't be taught until you do it, and that's when you do become, you know, an international athlete and having to deal with the distractions, whether it's sponsorships, it's the fans, it's the it's the money, you know, it's the it's it's the selfishness of, of players in a team that, you know, are looking after themselves and making sure that their spot is, is protected and, and you're not a threat, you know, and you know that was that was something to me that was the downfall towards the end of my career with the New Zealand team when I was 27 when I really hit the wall with depression I thought that New Zealand team was you know my family and I gave it everything and you know if I was away on tour you know if I felt a little bit homesick I'd, I'd you know people would know that and I'd say hey listen you know blah 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 and feel a little bit flat and 
um, but but it sort of worked against me because you know when you're at that level if you show any weakness then that can be preyed upon and it was certainly used against me um, during a couple of times I've I was dropped you know and certainly after I scored a double hundred in test cricket and then the next test match uh, or test match, after, test match after I scored a 90 so I had three good test matches in a row and then get dropped because my technique wasn't good enough that was like a really big knife through my heart of 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 like, well, um, New, Zealand's my, New Zealand's my home, New Zealand's my, um, uh, my family, and I just feel like, you know, my family's just dumped me again. And that was when I went on a big downward spiral, was just like how, it reali- how I realised that professional sport is actually really cruel. Cricket as well is so, the success is so quantifiable. Like you've obviously, you were scoring double hundreds, you then scored a 19. That's obviously what everyone would consider success in batting. And then you get dropped. You must be then constantly searching for answers and that must, you know, add into the mental state that you were in. Oh man, that was, that was the defining moment of my career in New Zealand. It was just like, wow, I just, I just, I don't like, I don't like cricket. I don't like the New Zealand team. I don't like the people involved. I completely feel heartbroken that, you know, you've given everything to this team and yet they treat you this way. And, you know, I went home to my countryside little little house in the middle of nowhere and literally just cried for days, didn't eat for days. And that's when I first discovered depression. And, um, yeah, I didn't leave the home, went to the doctors a couple of weeks later and and just, yeah, it affected everything. It affected my private life, it affected friendships. It just it was the, the bottom bottoming out of my, my career. And, um, and at that stage it was... I, you know, I spent a month away from the game, and then my Auckland coach Mark O'Donnell, who I hands down is the most inspiring, the most amazing man manager in the world, and 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 he was just, hey, you just come back when you're ready, and got me back into that Auckland team. And I remember, okay, right, well, there's a one-day game against Wellington. You know, you're playing Lou. I said, yeah, I'll I'll come down. So I went to the drove to Auckland. I was about 40 minutes out of town, and I just remember sitting in the car and just not wanting to get out and I was like far out I just I can't do this I can't face I can't face going out there and everyone knows I'm I'm a sad depressed person and and then I'm not sure if I should say this on 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 ear or anything but um, a mate of mine who was a neighbor put something in my car uh, the week before and it was a joint and it was just sitting on the on the on the on the ground of the car I was like oh yeah I probably need something like this to 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 help me so I had a little smoke on this joint and I laid there and went man come on, you've come this way, you've driven down, get out of the car. And I got down there and walked into the ground and the team was already sort of warming up and I was just embarrassed, I just didn't want to be there. But I just remember this little kid came up to me, he goes, hey Lou, yay, oh, I can't wait to watch you back today. And I was like, okay, cool, all right, that's cool, I better keep on going. And I got to the change room and the manager was there and they were all just loved, they said, listen man, just, just do what you've got to do if you, if you want to go out and join the boys. And I was just had a big smile on my face, I was just, went, I was just like, oh, I was a bit happy. <laughs> I don't smoke any drugs, but this was like, I was just like, this is cool. And then just went out there and I dropped three high catches and I couldn't hit a ball and I was just like, but I just didn't care. I was just like, oh, far out. I was just like, oh. And the game started. We batted first and I top scored with 55 in a 2020 game. And then, you know, went back to the change room and, and just cried. I was just like, oh my God, this is just too much. And, and then went home and then. I'm just like, oh, I can't, I just, nah, just done, I'm done. And then I just don't want to play cricket in this country anymore. Um, that's when the ICL, the Indian Cricket League, um, popped up. And they said, well, my, the, 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 my wife at the time was, was British. And she said, well, why don't we move to England? And while we were in England, take on the contract in India, in the ICL. And that way you've got good finances, financial money come in. And... You know, you don't have to worry about playing for New Zealand again. So that was it. The decision was made in a week. We packed up the house and took off to, took off to the UK via India for six weeks. And that's when the second part of my life completely opened up <laughs> in the sporting world. I think even just, even just that, the, the smoking thing, it just shows the amount, the immense pressure that professional sportsmen are under. I'm not going to make it out like you were smoking all the time, but you like you needed something. You know, the amount of pressure and the mental state that you're in, it <laughs> clearly shows that it was just... It was just way too much but um yeah if we get into you going to the icl um sort of how did how did all of this start because obviously it's well documented the situation you got yourself in and i'm right am i right in saying that it just started with a phone call one one day when you were uh in india 
Oh, it was it was incredible. It was it was like we're in India, and again, I was I was very still very depressed. I was like struggling with like just being uh, just with cricket and where I was going, and uh, completely still hurting from you know the way my career finished with New Zealand, the unknown of where I'm going. You know, uh, India, we're playing in a rebel tournament where it wasn't guaranteed that we were going to get paid. It was just. It was just a shambles. It was disorganised. There was no clothes. There was no. You didn't even know which room you had to stay. You know, you were booked into and that. But uh, it, it found its feet. And fair play. You know, the Indians do make things happen, and they love cricket. And India, by hands down, is the most enjoyable place to play cricket in the world. It's it's fanatical. And and then, um, like most tours in India, you always get phone calls to your room saying, "Oh, we would like you to." You know, use our gear, and or we would like you to do a TV ad, or we'd like to, you to have coffee with you. Please, I'm a big fan. Everyone's your big fan. It's it's lovely. Um, but yeah, this one particular afternoon, got a call in my hotel room from a guy saying he's got some batting equipment for me. He wants to use for the tournament, and it was it was it was ideal timing because walking away from New Zealand and and joining the Rebel League, all our sponsors um, had sort of cut ties with us. So you know, we're all free agents to use any gear we wanted over there and so I was like yeah cool man we'll hook up tomorrow and the next day he called me and he said yep come to the hotel room which is you know, in the same hotel as us and um, went up to the room and opened the door and he welcomed me in and you know it's happened before on tours where you go in there and they have all the bats and all the gear and you go around there and you buy a few bats take them back to New Zealand for your mates blah 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 but walking through and there was no bats you know and you walk in there and oh yeah no worries yeah all good he's friendly and welcoming and making me feel good and then there was his wife I'm sitting on the end of the bed and she was friendly hello hi and poured me a whiskey and oh having a good chat and just talking about how great I was and how amazing I was I'm like holy shit I wish you were my wife I would, oh, this is this is a sort of ego sort of rubbing conversation I'd like to have all the time I'm, I'm feeling good about myself this, this guy's this guy's making me feel good and then we got chatting about the gear, and he's like, "Well, you know, hey, this is the, our bats are this." And I started asking about the, the oh, what are your stickers? You know, what colours are they? And they said, "Oh, and where's the gear?" And then he said, "Oh, well, you know what concierge is like in, in India; it's a bit slow, so the bats are on their way. So just be, be patient." Um, and we got chatting a bit more, another whiskey, and and then um, uh, after about half an hour, I was like, "Oh, yeah, listen, it's good to meet you, but I, I want to see the gear." And he goes, "Listen, you know." I'll, I'll go downstairs and, and, and find out where the gear is. And so as he's about to leave the room, I went to the bathroom and he pulled me, pulled me aside and said, hey, our business, our company's going to look after you forever and ever. Um, she isn't my wife. She's a present for you. You can, you can, you can, you can sleep with her and uh, she's our present. Two minutes later, he comes back into the room and he's like, um, yeah, well, yeah, the gear's, gear's, gear's sort of stuck downstairs, but, you know, let's just have a, have a whiskey and talk a bit more and... Blah blah blah, and then he and then he sort of got straight into it. He said, "Listen, right, this is how the business works." And he pulled out fifteen thousand dollars U.S. cash and just sat it on the table and said, "Right, that's our down payment, and we deal in cash. And uh, and um, what we do is we we bet inside games." And I was like, "Oh shit, that's when the penny dropped. That I've just been completely honey trapped into um, into a bookie." And because we had education, I'd probably sat through about twelve sort of seminars during my cricketing career sort of warning us of this but it was just like oh it's never going to happen to me no chance it's going to do and then it was like oh shit I'm in trouble here he's probably got cameras around the room recording what's just happened and he's giving me $15,000 cash and explaining how the betting system works and all that and and um uh and I was like oh I've got to get out of this room and I said listen okay cool I'll think about it I'll go downstairs and and and, and I'll have a think about it and um, yep, I'll come back in whatever it was, 10 minutes, but I just need some time to think about this. And so I left the room, went straight down to my manager room and said, hey, this is what's happened, and I explained it to her. So she said, leave it with me, we'll get security up to that room. What happened to the cash? I said, well, um, he wouldn't let me leave the room with the, uh, the money, so I put it into the safe, and she said, I'll just write the code on the piece of paper, and, um, and we'll take care of it and stuff. And and that was the last I heard of it. I was like, cool. So I went back down to my floor and, and that's when it all sort of happened. It's both a fascinating and shocking story there, Lou. And it's really interesting hearing about the different techniques that match fixers use to try and lure you in into their world. And you obviously did well to turn down that initial offer. But obviously it's very well documented that shortly after you did get involved in match fixing, following a separate approach from different fixers, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that time? Yeah, it's 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 a pretty something that I'll never um, unfortunately forget, and it was something that completely I will I'll have to live with with the way I disrespected the game and and how I got involved. It's certainly match fixing in England. That's that's the home of cricket. You know, playing for Lancashire and Sussex. You know, that's that's how dare you. You know, it's, there's no 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 one has the right to to do what I did in those games when there's fans and there's sponsors and there's fellow players giving it a hundred percent and one of the, one of the best out of the sport, you know, it's, that's something that, you know, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll never ever be proud of. Um, but you know, Hey, it happened. And what can I do now to make sure that not another young player, um, can be groomed or manipulated into a match fixing. And that's my purpose in life. And, I like to think that um, I'll have an impact, which it seems to be happening here in New Zealand. The feedback, not just within cricket, but hockey, soccer, rugby, the, the Olympic Committee, the people I talk to, New Zealand police, business people, you know, the people I speak to do get it. And I think I've, I'm making an impact. So hopefully I'm winning a few brownie points in the cricketing world. <laughs> It is great that you are helping people now and you're turning your situation into a positive. And we're really grateful for you to for opening up about that sensitive time in your life because hopefully someone listening to this might um, be helped by it. And if they ever find themselves in a situation similar, then they're going to not ha- have to go through the same thing. Um, but I find it really interesting how you, you talk about it as if it was sort of grooming. And it is, and you can sort of see how somebody, particularly someone like yourself, who might have been in a vulnerable state, you, you were depressed at the time, you can see why someone like that could be exploited by these corrupt people, these match fixers. Um, so I, I, I completely appreciate how that someone could be manipulated like, like you were. But what, what I'd like to know as well is what, what sort of things were they actually asking you to do? Oh, so it, it, it was pretty straightforward. But as an opening batsman, I was just asked to score, you know, between 10 and 15 runs off 20 balls and get out. That's it. Job done. 50,000 US dollars in some random account in, in Dubai. All yours, no worries. Piece of cake, keep it simple. You know, and, and yeah, that's, how, that's how it all started. It started very simply. And, and then um, as, as I got deeper involved with match fixing and you started dealing with other, other bookies, it became more, more technical where, say, in a 2020 match, um, it was broken into five over um, sessions. So the first five overs, the second five overs, the third five, and then the last five. Um, so at the end of the second um, session, which is overs six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, um, they would choose three over blocks during that um, session. So, if, for example, overs 8, 9, 10, they would only want to see um, 12 to 14 runs scored. So off three overs, 12 to 14 runs isn't much in a 2020 match. So it's about controlling the, the runs and, and being on strike and playing and missing and, and hitting the fielders or, you know what I mean, and, and then getting out. And then uh, that was probably the hardest part to, to um, uh, what's this, what's the, to perform was to control a game when you're 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 on the take but the other person isn't and you have to sort of like you said try to hog the strike or blah 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 so you can sort of see why they try and groom you into or threaten you to get other players because more players involved in a team the more they can guarantee that um, the the betting is controlled and you know we're talking you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars bet on certain sessions of the game. Um, and it's massive money. It's huge money. Yeah, it is huge money. And I guess that's why it's so tempting for young cricketers to get involved because in cricket, you're probably not going to make millions unless you're right at the very top of the game, particularly 15 years ago or so when there's less money in it. So it must be tempting for a young cricketer who's maybe not making that much to get involved in match fixing. Oh, the other, the other avenue where I tell, especially with so many 2020 leagues around the world these days in so many countries is that you're a great player, um, there and thereabouts, the auction comes up and you go for a hundred thousand US dollars and you go, oh yeah, it's okay, hundred thousand dollars, you know, blah, 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 but anyway, I'm, I'm employed. And then um, a guy who's had a crap season all of a sudden gets two million US dollars. And there you go, the tournament starts and you're scoring all the runs, you got 50, 100, blah, blah, blah. You're winning the games for your 2020 team, absolutely on fire, everybody's loving you. And you're sitting in change rooms, 
um, on 100,000 US dollars and the guy next to you who's on 2 million has got a duck, a one, getting all, getting all the kudos, getting the big name, you know. And so you have this sort of sometimes this, this changing, changing room jealousy of like, well, you know, he's on way more money than me and I'm not getting much, but I'm performing. And that's also another vulnerable um, part of, um, of young sportsmen is they get a little bit bitter, they get a little bit jealous of what other people are on. So they're like, well, how do I find more ways of making money? And that's also been an avenue for players to get involved. And um, certainly, you know, again, if, if, if a powerful person involved in that world sees someone not get much money at an auction, they will sort of keep a closer eye on them and whether they'll be willing to be approached at some point. So that's, a, that's another uh, avenue that we're trying to educate the boys about as well, and girls, that, you know, hey, money's money, but hey, listen, you know, don't let money rule your professional career, otherwise, you know, you're going to run the risk of getting yourself in trouble. So it's almost, as you're describing, it's, fun, it's obviously to do with the financial side of things, but there's also other things involved as well, aren't there, like playing on the ego, and if you've, like you said, been in a changing room where you feel a bit of jealousy of another teammate, they play on that ego, and then ultimately it leads you to, to get involved with a, a world that is ultimately inescapable. Yeah, it is. Once you're there, you're, you're always living with a noose around your neck waiting to be bribed. And, you know, there's always subtle conversations about your children and where you lived and things that they knew about you that you didn't even know. And, you know, when you dealt with these people, when you picked up the cash and when you did the money exchange and the, the I think they call it, is it the halal system? Halawa? Halal, halal system or something. Where, you know, the serial number on a, on a banknote you know, you, you read that or you text it to the guy, the bookie, and that's your ID into the, the you know, the, the laundry shop to then pick up your bag of cash, you hand that money over and that proves that who, who you are and stuff and you've got the bag of cash. And it's in, 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 insane and, and the people that you come across, you, you do, you feel very threatened that, hey, these guys are, you know, gangsters, man, if they want you perhaps gone or you're a threat or whatever then you know they always let you know that they they know more about you than you, than you than they think and it's um yeah it was it was time it was time to get out of the game it was time to retire so i retired at whatever age 34 35 i was like oh gotta go this is just a shambles you know look at look at who i've become a, you know i've become a father of two kids and i'm trying to teach them honesty and respect and look at me i'm not even honest i'm not respectful you know and you know, again, you know, that took me down a second bad spiral of depression, you know, my marriage breaking up and pretty much living living in a van, cruising around the UK, not a proud moment. And that was um, 2011. And what, what are we now, 2020? It's taken, probably taken nine years to rebuild um, myself mentally and, and, and the inner peace and, and the happiness. And, you know, so finally, finally at 40, 42, I'm... At, at peace with the world and I'm feeling happy so it's been you know that's a big that's a big chunk of your life taken out with some pretty bad decisions and you know I'm glad I've got through it because there was times when I didn't think I'd get through it yeah it, you, it's, it's great to hear that you've uh, you've turned it around and, and you're in a much better place now it, it's really great to hear um and uh, just picking up on the point you're talking about um one of the difficult things was the fact that you were trying to teach your kids about honesty it, it must have been quite mentally draining when you were going through all that because you're having to put up a front and acting in front of not only your family but your teammates as well you're pretending that you wanted to do well when in reality you were trying to get yourself out on purpose and perform badly on purpose that that must have put quite a mental strain on you oh it's 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 ridiculous you know I, I, and i always remember one game for sussex and you know by the stage i just I didn't want to be involved, but financially I was in, I was in a lot of, um, after separation and all that, uh, I was in a bit of financial trouble in the UK and I was like, it was almost became desperation to, to perform. But then I was playing against my old club Lancashire in a 2020 match and if we'd won this, we would have gone through to the semi-final and I was almost forced to, like, you have to, you, you, you have to fix this game because you've stuffed up the last two and, you know, you, you, know, you owe us, Lou. And, and then as I walked out to bat, you know, I had the pink, the pink grip was the uh, code for the book, the bookies uh, back in India who were watching on TV. So if they saw me with a pink grip, that guaranteed that I was going to fix that game. And so I just, I just remember walking out halfway down the um, the stairs, and you know I just see the boys just in the change room, just so passionate to win, and and I wanted to win. I was like, no, this is fucking wrong. You know, why am I? What? This is just a mess. 
But there I am walking out with my pink grip, which meant, well, it is what it is. I can't turn back now. You know, I'm just going to have to close my eyes and just, just, just do what I've got to do to get the money and, and, you know, sort my private life, financial life out um, and, and, and just worry about the consequences afterwards. And just as we're walking out, the, the little bit of rain started falling down and it's just the umpire stopped and said, no, 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 it covers on, go back to the change room. And went back to the change room and just sat there and I was just like... No, I'm, I don't want to do this. So I, I changed my bats, went, and the rain stopped, and I walked out, walked out to bat with my white handle, which meaning that, nah, there's, there's no fix on today. And I knew there's going to be consequences. I thought, well, oh, well, if they come after me, if they, if they, if they do what they do, if they want to knock me off, knock me off or, you know, sort of threaten me again, then, then I'll just I'll accept that. But you know what? I, I want to win. I want to, I want to take the Sussex boys to the semi-final, and, and I want to, want to beat Lancashire, you know, and... And I felt good. I was like, oh, feel. So I'm walking out to bat, take my centre guard. My mood was bowling. You know, Sage was a good mate, and, you know, we had some good battles in the nets when I was at Lancashire, but I always thought I had one up on him. He was a class bowler, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to smash him around the park. And he comes steaming in. I'm feeling good. I can see the ball. And it's an absolute corker of a ball. It's just pitched on middle and just nipped away and just clipped the outside edge of my bat and got caught behind for a duck. And just, I just remember walking off the field just feeling like so lonely and just broken. It was like, wow, there I am just trying to win a game and I get a first ball duck. And so not only have I underperformed, I've also showed the bookies in India that um, I didn't want to fix and I was going up there to win. And so it was like a double whammy. And that's the that's the mess you get yourself in. And, and by that stage, it was towards the end of the season, I think, and then... Yeah, I pulled the pin and that, that was me. I, I, I left England and just sort of went back to New Zealand for a bit in Hong Kong and yeah, just trying to scratch through really. Yeah, I was, I was pretty much living day to day but there was a lot of substance abuse, there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of depression and, and trying to be a father and um, yeah, just, just, yeah, two years, three years after that I was still chasing my tail and until I got to the point where I could properly go home and, and um, talk to my family and say, that, well, this is what's going on. Um, and then I went to the, the Heath Mills, who's the, the head of the, the, the New Zealand Cricket Players Association, and, and I sort of said, mate, we need to go have um, a coffee, and that coffee turned into a lunch and dinner date, and we sort of spent seven hours talking about the whole story of how it all started and, and where we're at, and also what we're going to do to um, sort this out, and that was the turning point of my my career and, and coming forward and yeah there was questions being asked about me and the anti-corruption were um, you know sort of pressuring me with like um, you know sort of interviews and stuff but at the end of the day I was retired and I could have kept quiet and I did keep quiet because that was it I'm done see you later there's rumours sure no worries but I'm I'm done but it was that that moment of being back home safe with my family and um, with New Zealand Cricket Players Association that sort of really helped me um, come come forward and help clean the game up you know it was a, it was an interesting time especially when you come forward and to help the game and uh, and and the ECB had every right to hit me with the biggest ban and you know and having 11 life bans was pretty pretty full-on but like I said I, I accepted it and said absolutely you know I, I don't deserve to ever be involved with the game again and you know uh, and then what's that eight years later I'm yeah it's like I said it's lovely to be able to yeah, like use what I've gone through to build my inner happiness, my self-esteem, my confidence and turning what's been a really disastrous 10 years of my life into an amazing positive for, for growth in, in sport and certainly cricket. Yeah, and it seems like a theme of your, your current life is giving back to, to the community and you're, you're helping uh, the younger generation with your coaching but also um, you, you're helping uh, educate players around the world of corruption and match fixing. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing in that field? Yeah, no worries. But it started off with um, all the professional teams in New Zealand. So there's uh, the five um, provincial teams and then the five women's teams. Um, so it was great. Like it, was, it, was, it was for someone that never, ever liked standing in front of a group, talking to anybody, was Probably my biggest challenge, I reckon, was to get that confidence and understanding of how to structure a, a, a chat and a presentation. And Henry, Henry Moore, who's uh, involved with the Player Association here, him and I sat down and we did a PowerPoint presentation and, 
and it was just that first one. I just had to get that first one out the out the way. And you know, it was talking to my old provincial team, Auckland, who I also fixed fixed for while um, playing the Champions League in, in India and South Africa. So to face my old foe um, was a pretty big thing, but it I, it had to be done. I knew that the the best impact that I can have on the game of cricket going forward. Because look what happened to me. I sat through 12 uh, seminars during my career and I still got involved because it came from someone just reading out of a manual. Whereas my impact is that I'm educating and telling these athletes uh, first-hand experience that, hey, this is me, this is Lou, this is someone that you know did okay at times for New Zealand cricket, but man, I made an absolute mess of myself and this is how it happened. This is something that you've got to be careful of and it's, it's your right to um, protect the game and, and the future. And so it started with the players and then New Zealand hockey, you know, because they were playing a World Cup in India and, and um, you know, they wanted to, to use, you know, my story as well to help educate those sort of players and then New Zealand soccer and then all of a sudden New Zealand police got in touch and they do a, a f- anti-fraud, um, uh, corruption sort of money laundering um, seminar every couple of years in Wellington and they used my story and my, my situation to help educate like real estate agents, lawyers, politicians about the the grooming and the honey traps and the, how money is laundered and cleaned and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's been... It's it's been a pretty awesome impact to rather just be sitting at home, um, just building, surfing, and not giving back. I'm 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 all about giving. When my cricketing players, you know, when I was playing cricket professionally in any team, I just love giving to the team. I was the one clapping. I was the one running down to fine leg to get the guy's hat to give to the umpire. And I'm always been a, a firm believer that a teammate's got to got to give to to get back and although I didn't get a lot back uh, sometimes in my career um it's who I was and and so it feels right to be giving back um to to all sports because we are seeing a lot more not not first grade cricket not second grade soccer not third grade rugby but fourth grade in all sports are now being streamed on online even club games in England I see are streamed online and when things are live online that's the other angle I educate players is that if it's live online, there's a chance that that, that can be bet on anywhere in the world and that is uh, an easy approach for a bookie to come knocking on your door and say, hey, you know, Eshalt cricket team, you know, I'll give you guys, uh, you know, I'll give you guys £2,000 if you guys don't win the Wednesday night game against this team. And the boys go, oh, sweet as, you know. So that's what I'm trying to explain to amateurs. Amateurs could be a target for, for bookies. So it's the whole world's changing with um, the access of internet and live sports. It is something I hadn't considered before, you know, that idea that everything's now being increasingly streamed and there's more matches being shown. And that's something that, I guess, even with all, as more of these 2020 leagues and T10 leagues pop up around the world, there's just more matches and more things to be be betting on do you think as more of these franchises pop up it's going to be more of a problem or do you think because they're becoming more developed leagues now there's more governance and more regulation with it oh the icc and a lot of uh obviously do icc do all they can they're doing a a brilliant job in policing the game and protecting the game you know they're forever trying to educate players and the only thing we can do and, and that's where I get excited about is through one-on-one education and that's all we can do to players is to is to bring awareness to them how it works bring awareness to the traps and if they don't feel good about anything have them have an avenue and a safe avenue where they can report it because they do put a lot of pressure on players they say if you've been approached and you don't report it you could be subject to a two-year ban you know but if you've got your best mate that's come to you and stuff you know do you really want to dob your mate in it or be known as a narc? You know, it's it's a it's a lot of pressure, intense pressure for any any athlete to be put under. Um, but you know, we just got to bite the bullet and think about you know the good of the game and and um, you know and fingers crossed that players will maintain and continue to to report all act, all all activities. And as we all know, as as my career, you know, sort of got into that world. Um, it's all about sort of recruiting and asking other players to get involved and 
uh, and as soon as you do that, you're putting a friend in a compromising position and, and two friends who I did put in a compromising position in, in the English Cricket League did the right thing and they reported me. But the other thing as well, when you look at it, especially in the poorer countries, when you've got a businessman um, sponsoring a young cricketer, a 10-year-old, right through to his 18, you know, buying bats, getting into the games and stuff, and then thinking it's all lovely or great, they've had eight years of, of looking after this young player, you know, they get on TV playing a game, they're like, well, hey, you know, I've looked after you for eight years, you sort of, you know, you, you owe it to our business um, to, to match fix now. Mm-hmm. So grooming can start well before they become even professional. So there's a lot to, lot to handle in, in, yeah. in that sort of professional sport. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess that's the, the big thing is like these players are being, being groomed and sometimes they won't even know it's, it's happening and they will be um, drowned in gifts and the person will befriend them, pretend they're their friend um, when actually they're just trying to use them. And I guess that's part of your work is trying to help these players identify what the telltale signs are when they're being groomed and exploited. Yeah. So, so what, what would you say to the, that young cricketers should look out for um, when, they, when someone might be trying to um, exploit them? Hey, you've just got to have trusted people around you. You know, I think it comes from your your family life. You know, you've got to have a, a good relationship with your parents, you know, and m- mine growing up was a little bit sh- strange. You know, I sort of had to grow up on my own and I'd, I'd bounce from sort of groups and I moved a lot. So I never really had a core, strong group of um, support around me. And so, you know, I didn't really have that person overlooking, overlooking my shoulders to make sure I was making good decisions. You know, you've you've got to have... A very, a very important mentor. You've got to have someone that's going to help you with your game. You've got to have, um, you know, a strong relationship with your family or your, your partner, um, you know, fellow cricketers in your team. You know, you, you've just got to, you've got to, you can't live life on on edge f- being, you know, fearful that everybody's wrong. You know, we all want to live life thinking that everybody's good. And so you've got to think good, but you've also got to keep one eye open for the, the dark side of, of, of the world. And, you know, you know, just, hey, if you're going out there to, to win, then you've got no problems, you know. You've just got to keep that mentality that when you finally hang up your boots in your career, you know that you can be satisfied that all those hard training sessions you've done, running in the rain, you know, getting bruised on the head, you know, getting thrashed, having the most amazing wins, scoring 100, that you can hang your boots up and look back and go, yep, I'm, I'm proud, I'm, I'm a proud, and I'm going to you know, maintain that sort of proudness for the rest of my life. Um, because it's, that's all we've got in life is, is, is to, to, to feel good and to be happy. And that, yeah, that pride in the game and that joy from the game is something you're now carrying through with Windy Ridge Cricket Club, which we obviously follow on Instagram and it just it just seems to be highlighting all the best bits about cricket is people you know drinking in the sun having fun and it's getting so many kids into the game so do you want to maybe just speak about that a bit more and the work you're doing with that because we're big fans of it oh it's just come to life I'm really like I've got a couple of acres of land in Raglan and the top paddock I was just like I was getting sick of mowing it so I thought right what's the best thing to do to stop mowing well build a cricket pitch in a pavilion so it's like less grass to mow and you know lockdown came at the right time you know being a builder um I, I ran around for two days just getting every bit of material i could find and you know i'm a bit, a bit of a best boat builder i love building old and new together and uh you know stuff had been sitting in my garage for the last 15 years of all the caps i all the teams I've played for around the world, all the bats from uh, significant games, you know, signed bats from Don Bradburn and Brian Lara and Alan Border and the list goes on. And it was like, you know what, I like cricket. I really want to get back into it. And you know what, I'm banned from being employed. I'm banned from coaching. I'm banned from going to watch a game under the umbrella of the ICC. So I'm just going to build it at home. And I think I watched that movie, Field of Dreams, <laughs> during lockdown. I was like, yeah, if you build it, they'll come. And then it just, it just it made, it made me feel alive. 
I was always the go-to guy in the New Zealand team to go to the school visits and uh, and hang out and sign all the autographs and you know always giving at the end of the game end of the game giving something away because it was the kids that you know will, will make a healthy future for all sports. So Wendy Ridge sort of grew from like, well, you know, I need a distraction to give back because you know, you know, I, I, I just want to want to be involved again. And and then it started, man. It started with the the clubhouse and it, it was it was amazing. Like getting all the club all the hats up of all the teams I'd played for from the first one when I was four years old, which ironically was an Australian cap that Dad gave me, right through to my last cap, which was a, a Bangladesh team, and and just bringing back all the memories and putting photos online, and all of a sudden all the clubs were starting to talk to each other and going, oh yeah, Lou played here, and Lou was an idiot, and Lou did that, and just just bringing the community of cricket together, and then the excitement of like. Raglan, which is a surf town, nobody plays cricket here, and all of a sudden you had the farmers and the surfers. They're all like, "Oh, can we come up and hit some balls?" And you know, yeah, you can see on our Instagram account, there's some um, pretty, uh, pretty, some pretty funny shots being played. And um, and then last week we hosted our first Christmas do, and it was it was amazing. We had 35 doctors and nurses here who've, who've been on the firing line for the last eight months, just letting their hair down, and and people that hadn't played cricket before were just loving it, getting all the pads on and helmets and boxes and stuff and it's cool man and you know part of my madness is to keep doing what I'm doing but also I, I, I will I will be approaching the ECB at some point and saying hey this is what I'm doing uh, I want to be respectful I, I accept my punishment but you know I, I think I've got a part to play and if there's going to be any leniency in the future and possibly sort of downgrading the the 11 life bands um will be a will, will, something I'm, go, I'm going to try for absolutely but for now it's just going to keep things simple and keep things fun and keep working towards just yeah enjoying life because man people try and take it out of you man people try and crush you but no I just, i'm just I'm not gonna let that happen again no, it's, it's yeah. We've been obviously we following it for a couple of weeks now, and I, I think it's so good. And like you said, it's Raglan could be a surfing town, but literally all you need is a bloke like you who's doing good in the community, and then just inspires one kid, and they could go on to whatever level they play if they're playing cricket for life and having that in their life. It's just such an admirable thing to be doing. So fair play to you, mate. We think it's quality. Well, it's confidence in life. You know, there's one young boy that I was coached who was too shy to do anything. And he's always like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. No. And he's been here six weeks now. And his, his mum called me last week and said, he now wants to take up surfing. He's now skateboarding really well. He's now conversing with the family. You can see this little kid's confidence in life has grown because of just teaching really simple, basic skills of throwing the ball at the target and hitting it and making him feel awesome, you know. And and that's 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 what our responsibility as not only as a parent but as a role model as an adult for kids is we've got to we've got to get these the next generation confident and, and happy and being good people you know showing manners showing respect cleaning up you know and being dedicated and you know having discipline and and dealing with failure as well and you know make, but ultimately it's it's about keeping these kids up and happy and and moving forward and confident yeah, and I, I think the pandemic in general has given sports people like yourself an, an opportunity to do a lot of positive things for the community, and it is is great what you've been doing. Yeah. And it's been great. It must have been great to see um, the community supporting it in in such great numbers. And even the picture we were talking about earlier of of all those kids wearing sh- your old shirts. It, it must be great considering the lows you've been through that we've discussed already. It must be great to be where you are now and, and see that you're still a hero to all these kids and, and you still have a po- positive influence on all of them yeah oh it's it's trust me it's taken a long time to believe that um that that confidence in myself because you know I'm, you you you're you you can be your own hardest sort of judge and if you stuff up you feel like you've stuffed up in life and as a mental challenge when you do stuff up it's it takes a lot of strength and a lot of um you know sort of reprogramming your train of thought to to push that negative thought out of your mind and reinforcing it with a positive affirmation that you know hey yeah you've you've, you've made a mess of certain aspects of your life but come on man you're a good person and you've got a lot to give and 
you know that photo when it got sent through to me with all those kids wearing all my shirts uh, at the the first day of the test match was just just so cool and and the response I've had from ex players and ex cricketers from around the world just saying we we're behind you Lou we we hope to see you back involved with cricket in the future and and I, I like to think of yeah, at a certain point that will it will fall into into play and. Um, hopefully the ban may be reduced, but if it doesn't, it doesn't matter as well because I'll I'll always find a way to um, yeah keep keep uh, bringing um, good things to the sport. You say about friends and former cricketers who have supported your work. One of those is Heath Mills, the head of the New Zealand Cricket Players Association. It must be good seeing people like him supporting your work with Windy Ridge, and it must also give you hope and optimism that your positive work for the community will be recognised and perhaps help your ban be overturned. Well, hey, listen, you, you guys live in England, so if you can visit the ECB tomorrow and, and sort of uh, maybe play them play the interview and you can be my advocates, you can stand out and, and protest on the front saying, bring back Lou, and there you go, you can sort of, uh, you can petition it for me. There you go. <laughs> No, I think, I think, I think it's just it's just got to naturally find its own sort of way, you know, and and certainly building Windy Ridge Cricket Club, it's it's just sort of brought such a positive vibe in my heart, and it feels great. And and whatever happens from here forward, it's it's all a bonus. Um, but the the main thing is, kids are kids are playing cricket. Mm. Um, what what would you want to happen in the next five years or so? You're saying you're on this incredibly positive journey. If in an ideal world, how would that pan out for you? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, the biggest shift I want to see in Lou Vincent's life for the next five years is that there's going to obviously be less corruption in sport, which we're seeing, and maintaining my fitness <laughs> and 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 staying staying a healthy mind. I, I think once you've been to the bottom and you finally get back to the top again, you've got to got to really cherish your you know your mental health and. And it's the most important thing that we can, because if we love ourselves, then then we'll love lots of other things in, in life. If if we're chasing for loving ourselves through other people, then we're always going to be chasing our tail. Yeah, and it is great to hear those goals, and you, you, you're using your own personal situations to help others, which is great to hear. Um, one final question for me, which I'm interested in, is because you've been through this journey um, where you've been at the, the lowest of lows but you're now in a very good place mentally um, what would you say to um, other athletes who might be struggling mentally what advice would you give we're, we're obviously a podcast which is trying to promote positive discussions around mental health what advice would you give to people who might be struggling uh, for, for, for people that are struggling mentally I think you've got to take some time out You've got to eliminate distractions because we can get in a cycle of like always being in demand. You know, people contact us all the time on the phone, work demand, training demand and stuff. I think you've got to, at some point, you've got to take some time out to really get to know yourself. You've got to look internally at like what makes you tick, what makes you like yourself, what you want to achieve, and then learning the... um, uh, the programming of the mind to make sure that you can sort of hang on to onto your focus uh, because I see it too much I see people uh, especially athletes getting pulled left right and center and the pressure and the demand eliminate distractions bring it back in closer shut off you know regroup because if you come back a better stronger person you will perform better and you'll you'll be, you'll become a better athlete uh, and if if that doesn't work come to New Zealand to Raglan Winnie Ridge and I'll, I'll take you out fishing surfing and get the bowling machine on and, and come and come and have some fun that's the best therapy <laughs> cool. sounds amazing thanks so much for, for chatting to us like that mate honestly oh pleasure guys and keep up the good work I really love what you guys are doing and look forward to hearing the next series Apart from apart apart from hearing my voice, I don't want to I don't want to hear this one. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's honestly it's, it's, we're so grateful for you giving up your time there. How you know I haven't done you know, I've, I've done two interviews in the last seven years, so this is the third one. Uh, I've, I've kept a pretty low profile, and uh, I know you guys contacted me quite a while ago to to do it, but I just, I, it wasn't quite the right time. I wanted to to you know do the the, the local piece here in Raglan first, and then that sort of grew into the the national New Zealand Herald piece and had great support from the Black Caps coach straight after that article and and now you guys and now I can just sit back and sort of get on with it and not have to push too much so thank you for um thank you for encouraging me to be involved great to meet you although it was virtual and just hearing from you is amazing and we'll be sure to um, 
know, the ECB this this hour <laughs> we've had with you. Okay, guys. Hey, all this, guys. Keep in touch, eh? Cheers, Lou. That was both a fascinating and shocking account into the world of match fixing. And I was so interested to hear all the intricate details, like how he changed his bat handle to a pink grip on days where he'd throw a match. And for me, I was particularly gripped by what drew him into fixing in the first place, because from the outside, you'd look at Lou Vincent and think, right, he's an international sportsman, one of the best cricketers in the world, playing for New Zealand and making money. Why would someone like that need to match fix? And while it doesn't excuse his actions, when you dissect Lou's story further, you can see that his vulnerability and mental state at the time were major reasons behind why he did what he did. And what he did was terrible and he completely disrespected the game. But he acknowledges that now and is bringing a lot of positivity to the sport. He's educating young athletes about the dangers of match fixing and his work at Windy Ridge is also bringing a lot of happiness to the community. I hope you enjoyed that episode and hearing about Lou's story and hopefully this interview can provide a deterrent to potential match fixers and encourage athletes to continue reporting approaches. The details of it all, the pink grips, the trips to Birmingham warehouses, the threats he was receiving in different hotel rooms, it just reveals the true nature of match fixing and shows that side of sport to be a world that is far from having any glamour at all. I think over the course of that hour, it became clear that 2021 Lou Vincent is so far from that guy who got roped into it all however many years ago, and that is just really positive. Fair play to Lou also, because I think with a lot of people, it may have been difficult to reflect on such a bad period of their life like that, but Lou just seemed so aware that he was in such a different mental space at that point in his life, and Ultimately, he was and is a good guy, but he was one that was vulnerable and one that was exploited. He did what he did, but now he's so happy and he's doing the best thing he can, which is using his experience for good, and you can't help but feel inspired and in admiration of someone like that. To those who have listened, if you do have any feedback, we'd really love to hear it. So feel free to send us a message on Instagram at GivingTheGameAway or leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 